One Hope Church. Of Matthew, not too many um, chapters left, so we're in Matthew chapter 25 this morning. Um, If you have your Bible with you or you have your Bible on your phone, uh, Matthew chapter 25. you imagine 50 years ago saying, if you have your Bible with you or if you have your Bible on your phone? <laughs> you know, <doing> what? <laughs> you have your phone with you? <laughs> you know, so anyway, times, um, there are things in time that change, but you know, the, the hearts of humans um, have always kind of been the same. And, the, uh, and, and one thing's for certain, God is the same uh, yesterday, today, and forever. Um, and so we want to look this morning, as we're going into Matthew 25, I just want to give a little bit um, of an introduction to remind us you know, where we are um, in the book. And if you've joined us later in the study, this could be particularly helpful, but you know, I, I find that we all tend to have reminders because a lot happens from one Sunday to the next um, in our lives, and you, know, you, can, you can lose track of, of what we had just you know, covered. But I want us to remember that Jesus came into um, this world, um, the Son of God, for a purpose. Um, And he suffered for that purpose, because his purpose was to provide a way for us to be right with God. Because on our own, we can't be right with God. Even our best efforts still Fail, as the scripture says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Like we, no matter our, even our very best isn't good enough. That kind of that's kind of stinky, but the, that's a, you know that's sad. But the good news is that God, in His great love for us, you know, in His grace and His mercy, says to us, you know, I understand that you aren't good enough and can't be good enough, but there, I'm going to send you one who is, who make a way for you make a door for you, and you can enter through Him. And this is the beauty of the good news of Jesus Christ, you know, for us. And I just want to remind us, and I think it is relevant for this um, passage this morning, especially toward the end of it, so, you know, hold this nugget in your your mind, and, and we'll get to it as we get to the end. But Jesus, when He, you know, when He came to this earth, He wasn't born in a palace, um, he was born in a, in a lowly place where the animals would have been kept at night. That's where Jesus was born. And it wasn't the, you know, the elite of the world that was first there to greet him, but it was, you know, it was common shepherds tending their flocks by night. And they were the ones to go on that night and to to praise him. Now there were a little bit later some dignitaries, some powerful people from the east who came, who followed the you know the the star, the sign in the sky, and went um, went to Herod, who we've talked about here recently, um, and some of the things he built in Israel. But went to the Roman ruler of that era, era Herod, and said, you know, we're looking for the one who's going to be king of of the Jews. And, you know, Herod saw that as a threat. Hey, when you find him, tell me where it is. He wants to kill him. And realizing that they didn't come back to him, you know, he puts forth an, an order for all the baby boys in that region, two years and under, to be killed. It's a horrific thing. But Joseph, being warned by God, you know, fled, you know, as a refugee to Egypt. And Jesus was a refugee child in Egypt and then didn't come back until Herod was dead. And then they went and settled in the area of Nazareth after that. Um, and it's just an, an amazing um, you know, history that we have there. And, and Jesus, you know, he, he grows up and then when he's about 30 years old, he starts his, his public ministry. And that's most of what we have in the gospel is, you know, some scenes... From those three years of his public ministry, that's, you know, there's, um, 
uh, I haven't 100% verified this, but I've heard it's about 52 days of actual ministry. You see the scenes of Jesus over those three years there's like, that are recorded in the scriptures for us that show us you know, what he taught and, and what he did. But he's training these disciples, these 12 that he's called. He trains them for three years, and he, he's in confrontation with the religious leaders. Because they were looking for someone who would do two things. One was to give them a political freedom from the Roman Empire. And two would keep them in their place of power. In their religious place of power. And all the, the benefits and all the wealth and everything that came with how they had set up the system at that time. And so that's what the Pharisees you know, and the Sadducees, but particularly the Pharisees especially, really wanted in, in all of that. And so, you know, we saw just recently in, you know, chapters 23 and 24, where Jesus basically tells the religious You know, where we stand um, with it as we come into this morning. And so, you know, he's been talking to his, he's finished his conversation with the Pharisees, and then he's been telling these prophetic things in chapter 24 about what's going to happen um, in the future. And then he's continuing that in chapter 25. If you mess up the interpretation, your application is going to be way off and it's going to lead to bad things. Okay? But this is one of those cases, whether you believe, um, you know, that there's going to be the rapture of the church and then the seven-year tribulation and then a millennial kingdom, you, you know, and that's, you know, kind of, well, you know, from where I sit, I see as most likely, a, you know, wrapping everything into scripture, even though that's not the most in vogue um, thoughts of today from theologians. Um, it used to be, now it's not, kind of, you know, things kind of come and go. Um, or you have some other interpretation, your application today should be the same. And so I want to make that clear. So why don't we go ahead and let's go ahead and, and pray again, and then we'll, we're going to read the first 13 verses, and we're going to roll right, right into this. So Heavenly Father, again, as we come into your word, we're thankful for it, and we pray that you would give us understanding that you would help us to see things as they, they are and as they will be. Um, but most of all, Lord, that you would do a work in our hearts, that you would continue to work in us and help us to know your truth and to live according to your truth. Pray for each person in this room that each one of us would know you through faith in your son, Jesus, know you fully. And that we would seek you, God, in our lives above all else. We ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen. So Jesus says this in verse 25. Sorry, chapter 25, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five 
were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. Then all of those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but rather go to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went out to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Now, what Jesus does um, throughout all of his parables is he takes things that were common experiences for the people in, in their time, and then he uses it to illustrate a spiritual truth. Okay? That's why he uses agricultural examples so much, because everybody could you know, relate to that. Everybody could understand that. And so he wants to be to say things that are understood. And so for this one, you know, we need to have a little bit better of an understanding of how weddings were done in this culture and in this time. Because for us, you know, we, we have a different way of doing weddings. So how we do weddings today is that, you know, you're going to say, these people are getting married at this particular place at this particular time. You know, you need to be there. Uh, you know, 15 to 30 minutes ahead of time in, you know, in, in, in certain cultures, anyway. <laughs> we're, we're laughing because our, our good friends in water of Manessa, uh, you know, in, in Latin culture, you know, things can be a little bit more relaxed, you know, about the time. Um, but in other cultures, you know, we, we're pretty precise about timing of certain things specifically, specifically being a wedding. I mean, you know, if that thing doesn't, if that wedding does not start, you know, people are going. Mm, somebody got cold feet. If that, if it doesn't start on time, if it's a ten minute delay, oh boy, we got trouble. There is trouble. This is not looking good. You know, I mean, people are going to be starting to get nervous, right? So, this isn't that sort of situation. What would happen is the the bridegroom would, you know, at some when he's ready. He goes, you know, to the bride's house and calls her and brings her back to his, you know, house, his family's house. And they have, you know, the wedding ceremony and a big party and everything. But there's, you know, there's a lot of room there in terms of time. Things are not, you know, precise. And it says here, you know, the bridegroom, we don't say, you know, why, but, you know, because it says that, He's delayed. He's delayed to the point where it's gotten late at night and people are tired and, you know, people are, are sleeping. Okay, and so he's saying this to illustrate that, you know, in this, in this context, I think, you know, there's, again, prophetically there's a lot going on. We're studying the book of Revelation in our house fellowships and we can, we'll, you know, talk about that side of it more specifically, you know, there. But this could be, you know, a future thing where the bridegroom is coming back, you know, for some for those in, in Israel, and he's coming back with his church. That's a possible um, interpretation of that. The church is already gone, and now he's coming back, you know, to set up his kingdom. And the particular here, Jewish people who've come to believe in Jesus during the tribulation period are in view, and which ones are ready and which ones are not ready. That's a possible interpretation of that. But in terms of application, here's an application that everyone should accept regardless of your view on end times things. Be ready. Be ready. Always be ready for the Lord because you don't know, you know, you don't, you, you don't know that your interpretation is 100% correct, one thing. Regardless, there's going to be a sudden coming of the Lord, whether that's rapture of the, you know, to take the church away, rapture of the church, or a second coming where Jesus comes back to rule and to reign. Whichever order that happens in, however that happens, be ready. There's another thing that happens that's happened for 2,000 years now since Jesus has 
you know, gone to the cross and been raised from the dead. People are born, people live, and people die. And we don't like to think about that too much, but, you know, life is, is short. But, you know, most people think that, you know, they're going to at least see their death coming. And they're going to be able to take some time to prepare for that. And there's a warning here that we can all apply that says, you know, you don't know, you know, you often don't know your day or hour. People die suddenly. People die unexpectedly. There are accidents. Sometimes, you know, a vital organ just ceases to do its job. It clocks out. You know, and, and that's it. So, are you ready? Are you ready, no matter what shape or form it happens, are you ready to meet the king of the universe? Be prepared. Be prepared. Well, how do you prepare yourself? Well, the, the real way you, you prepare yourself is that you believe in Jesus while there is still time. You take, you know, here the, 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 the push is to take the things of God seriously. You know, and, and I, I meet a, a lot of people who say, you know, well, one day I'll get to that. You know, you start talking about things of faith and things of Jesus. And, you know, you hear a lot from people. A lot of times I hear it from younger people of, you know, when I'm, when I'm older, you know, I'll look into that more. I'm, I kind of just want to have my fun now. And when I'm older, I'll look into it. Well, that's just an excuse. And it's not a good excuse. Because one, you don't, you know, you, you're, it's arrogant to say, I know I'm going to have till I'm older. There's an arrogance that comes with that. But there's also an, an unrealistic part in the, in the person's mind. And, and often, there, you know, that's just a, like, a way to put you off. There's not an, in, an intention to ever get to it. It's just a way to kind of end the conversation and to move the conversation out. So we need to be encouraging people, be ready. Believe in Jesus while there is still time. While you still have today, because the scripture says, today is the day of salvation. The scripture says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So if you haven't already, today is the day to say, Lord, forgive me. I'm a, I'm a sinful person. But I believe that what your son Jesus did on the cross was adequate. It was sufficient for my salvation. I believe in you, Jesus, that you died for me, that you rose from the dead. It is, it is simple, but it has to be real. It is simple, but it has to come from the, the core of, of who you are. It can't just be a mental agreement with the facts. It's got to enter in at the deepest core part of who you are. And then Jesus continues with this. He gives another illustration. He says, for the, in verse 14, he says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Then he went, then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he had received two, gained two more also. But he received the one, went and dug it in the ground, and hid his Lord's money. And after a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I gained five talents more besides them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He had also received two talents, came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have two more talents besides them. And he said, his Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Then you had received the one talent, came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you had not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there, you have what is yours. But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked 
and lazy servant. If you know that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed, you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers, and at my coming I would have received back my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But for him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, I want to talk about this one. There's one thing I want to do just here at the very beginning, because you know, I've read this story before, and I, you know, I'm a softie, and so I, I sometimes, and so I end up feeling a little bit, you know, man, that's kind of harsh for that, you know, that that third servant. But there's a couple things before we talk about the the two who did really well. Let, let's talk about that that servant there for a minute, and then we'll go back to the other two. Um, first of all, a talent, you know, is uh, it was a a, a measure of money in this case it's silver and it's over 50 pounds of silver is one talent so that's a lot of silver that's a lot of of value to be entrusted with even just one um and and you know when this servant is given that this the scripture calls him jesus calls him Two things, wicked and lazy, both. Now, he's, he's lazy because he doesn't seek to add value to what he's been given. Okay, that's, that's why he's lazy, but, but why is he wicked? Why is he wicked? And here's what it, where it comes to with the bankers. Here's the part that is often easy to miss and to misunderstand. You see, if that servant goes to the bankers and says, I have this talent, it's going to be recorded. This talent was given to the bankers. This person is the one who put it in. But the owner of the talent is this other person. So he said, when he's able to come back, you know, the, the owner says, when, you know, I could have come back and received it with interest. Okay. When the servant just goes and digs a hole and puts it in the ground, it shows his wicked heart because he actually doesn't have intention to give it back. He's waiting to see, is he coming back? Is he not coming back? And if enough time passes where he feels comfortable that he's going to be able to get away with it, he's going to go out of that field, he's going to dig up that talent of silver, and he's going to use it for himself. That's why he's wicked. Because he doesn't, he doesn't want there to be any, he wants to make that money untraceable, to put it in our terms today. That's why he doesn't take it to the bank. Because it's actually, think about it, it's less work to, to get it to the bank and say, here it is. And then you don't have to worry about it because it's in other people's hands, right? And, and you know, if something happens to it, you say, well, I took it to the bank. And they misuse your money. In the field, there's a risk that somebody else could discover it. It actually takes work to dig, to bury it. It takes more work to do that than it does to drop it off at the bank. He's wicked because his intention is to steal it. The Lord knows his heart. He also makes these excuses. He says, you know, I know you're somebody who, you know, you know, gathers where you didn't sow and this and that and the other thing. His view of his Lord is, you know, negative and jealous. And, you know, it's, it's interesting how Jesus said, you know, basically says, you know, if that was all true, well, you still should have done this. You know, it's an excuse. It's an excuse. And it's not something that's proved here. It's not something that's proved here. It's just something that this wicked, lazy servant uses as a, as, to justify himself. Well, people always do that, right? Like, well, I don't believe in God because... And, and here comes a justification. Right? 
And, and usually it's to justify themselves and what they've done and to not take accountability and responsibility for their own sin. Because, you know, the excuse is, well, you know, other people have done these things, you know, in life to me, and that's why I've done my bad things. As opposed to just owning it and saying, I'm actually responsible for my own actions. I'm responsible for my own words. I'm responsible for my own thoughts and my own attitudes. And those have been contrary to God, and I'm sorry. You know, in this situation, you know, the the servant doesn't want to admit that he's wrong. Because the story actually, I believe, goes very differently if when, you know, the Lord comes back, he falls on his knees and says, you know, I was wicked. I was lazy. I did the wrong thing. Please forgive me. He doesn't do that. He makes excuses for why he did what he did. He doesn't own any personal responsibility. We also need to point out here, again, whatever context this is in, that salvation is not obtained or lost by what a person does, but what a person does reveals their salvation or the lack of it. You know, this this servant didn't do the wrong thing and then have a heart problem. He had a heart problem, had a moral and ethical problem, and then therefore, in the heart, and then therefore did the wrong thing. It's what is in us that comes out of us. So we need to understand that. Now, let's not all be negative here. Let's look at those two other servants who took what they had been given. What they did revealed their heart you know, towards the Lord, towards their Lord in this case, but for the spiritual you know, lesson to the Lord. They, they wanted to do good with all that God had. You know, the spiritual application is they wanted to do good with all that God had given them. And, you know, and, and thankfulness and to, you know, do exceedingly well with what they had been gifted in life. Because here they're given a lot. You know, one's given over, you know, 500 pounds of silver. The other one's given over 250 pounds of silver. They've been given a lot. While we contend, regardless of your economic position in this life, we all have, you know, certain economies to be stewards over whether we have a little or a lot but we but bigger than that we all have spiritual blessings and gifts you know that that god makes available to us to use and to invest and to grow in this world and we have opportunities for all of that but notice just a couple of things that, that Jesus um, says to them that are really important. One is that he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Man, if you're a follower of Jesus, you know, if he's your king and you're his servant, I mean, what more do you want when it's all said and done than for him to say, well done, good and faithful servant? That should be something we strive for as a priority. Well done, good and faithful servant. But then there's this giving of responsibility. You know, and you know, I just want to dispel this myth that when you know in the future, once you've seen Jesus face to face, you know that somehow you know you're just gonna be floating up on this cloud, you know, playing a harp or something, and just that's gonna be the extent of your eternity. No, God, our God is an active God. The universe that he's made, in the expanse of it, and all the details of it, our God is an active, creative, working God who made us, Adam and Eve, when he put Adam and Eve in the garden, he gave Adam work to do. Work is not bad. Sin just makes it hard. 
the fact that we live in a sinful fallen world makes work hard, but work was never bad. It's actually always been good. So we're, you know, our eternal future is not a lazy one. We don't sit around on couches all the time and take naps like for eternity. You know, that doesn't, that's not God's ideal for us. There are going to be celebrations. There's going to be, you know, feasts. There's going to be parties. There's going to be music. There's going to be all these things. And there's going to be work to do. I don't, can't explain all that and how all that works, but he wants us to be active. And he says, you know, one who's given, does well with what he's been given, is going to be given more and given more responsibility, more things. And I don't know what all that looks like in the future. I can't tell you. I just know that you want to be the, one of the ones that's prepared to receive from the Lord what's good and more, more blessing and more responsibility. And then he says this, so well done, you get the, what Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant. That's the first one. Second is you get more responsibility, more opportunity. And the third one is, he says, enter into the joy of your Lord. Enter into his joy. And so, again, one of those things... Um, that we have to think about, you know, in life, is that are we working for temporary happiness that comes and goes, moment by moment, event by event, or are we seeking a long-term entering the joy of our Lord? I think mean, there's a joy that God gives us now when we're doing his will. But then there's going to come a point where we're going to have the joy, again, without the barriers of sin, without the encumbrances, the difficulties of this world, and we're going to have this permanent place of joy. I mean, have you thought about this, that there aren't, um, you know, when, when in eternity with all of God's you know, people and in the presence of the Lord, one, you're not going to be grumpy, and two, nobody's going to be grumpy. Can you imagine that? Like, you're going through and not, not, not dealing with grumpy people. There's no, and, and other people not having to deal with my grumpiness. There's just no grumpiness. There's, just the, there's the joy of the Lord. There's not going to be any, like, I'm hangry. Hungry, angry. There's not going to be any of that. Or uh, maybe we should call it sangry. Like, I'm sleep-deprived, and I'm, that makes me a little bit angry. Because you know we get that, right? Yeah, you know, we can get that. But you're not going to have that. You're going to have in the joy of the Lord. In the joy of the Lord. I mean, that's a beautiful thing. So, you know, those two servants that receive that, what a blessing. And that there's an application there for us to live our lives accordingly so that we're prepared to receive that. Now let's get this last one here, verses 31 through 46. It says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. And the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry... And you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison? And come to you, and the king will answer and say to them, But surely I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left hand, Depart from me, you cursed into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, 
and you did not visit me. And then they will also answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it unto me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Powerful. Powerful. Again, we need to remember that the when this exactly happens, this seems to be different than the great white throne judgment or the judgment for, you know, just that's just for believers, but this could be, you know, for those entering into the millennial kingdom after the tribulation, that's a possibility. But what I want us to understand, again, is this application is, you know, faith is revealed by actions, and how we treat the least of these reveals our faith. And that's something to take stock of. That's something to recognize. And in this day and time, we have a lot of people who are hungry, who are thirsty, who are strangers, who are not clothed, who are sick, who are in prison unjustly, um, we have forced labor and forced slavery. That's a type of prison, whether it's, uh, you know, in many places, in many situations, bad governmental decisions, you know, imprisoning the wrong people, or it's people being imprisoned by human traffickers or people being forced labor. I mean, we have over, I think now the number is like 40 million or over 40 million people in slavery in our world today. That's a, you know, a, a a force deal that they can never get out of on their own. Their debts will continue to increase. Um, these are all these situations that we need to, to be aware of. You know, just because it's not so much in the news today, Syria isn't like solved. You know, it, it's it's out of the news cycle to a large degree, or, you know, much less than it used to be. Um, Venezuela has had over 13,000% inflation to where, you know, people can't afford food. Um, you know, it, it's, there's a lot of places and a lot of people who are desperate. Who are desperate. And we need to go back and remember that our Savior and King was a refugee in Egypt. And that's part of the story that we don't think about a lot of times. But our Jesus had to be taken in into another land for a period of time. Because things were so bad where he was that his family had to flee. Now, I'm not looking to get all political this morning on this subject. Okay? The only political thing that I will say is that regardless of which political party in our nation has been in power over the years, both sides have had opportunities to do a lot more good on our immigration thing, but have it. And they'll rail at the other one when they're not in power and then won't do anything when they are. And back and forth. And you can just go back and watch the tape on that if you want to. You can go back and watch the historical tape. And what you find is not that many people actually care if it isn't politically expedient. That most people don't care about, in our world, most people do not care about refugees. Regardless of political party. Most people don't care unless there's something in it for them too. Now, 
So I, I, I want to. I'm going to remove the politics from it, because you know what? As the church, we have a role to. You know, in our, we happen to be in a democracy. You know, a lot of churches in the world aren't in democracies. They don't get any vo- voice for what their government does. They just have to follow Jesus under the circumstances that they're in. We get the privilege of having our principles, our ethics, and our morality that we get from Jesus, that we can have a voice in the political world. Unfortunately, many times, people get into that, and then they lose sight of Jesus and all of that. So we don't want to do that. We don't want to do that. I just want to talk about the church. Because that is what we have responsibility for, ultimately, voice in, and decisions to make. And we can talk about our, you know, our local church. We need to be you know, using our resources, and we strive to use our resources in a way that honors God and helps people. Okay? But imagine... I mean, I'm not talking, I'm not here, I'm not even talking about those who preach false gospels. I'm not talking about false churches. I'm not talking about, the, you know, all of the rigmarole of that. I'm just talking about people who actually say, who make the claim, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And we follow him. He's our savior. He's our king. If that's the claim then we better take these verses seriously on Jesus' expectations of his people about what our priorities are. I mean, you know, we have to think about that. And there's guilt to go around for all of us, but we have, I mean, and I don't want unnecessary guilt. We we need to do what the Lord has asked us to do. But I mean, I just throw out this. If if just one family from every decent church in our state, one family from every decent church in our state took in one kid from foster care, we wouldn't have any kids in foster care. Like we could, now there might be more to come, there would be more to come that we would then have to take care of, but all of them that are currently in the system would be out of the system. If every decent church in our state took one. One family from each one took one. That's it. That's something practical the church could do to pursue that. If we say, okay, we need places to meet and we need buildings and we have to build power, you know, we have to pay power bills and all that stuff, but we need to do that within our means. So for every, we won't spend a dollar on ourselves when we haven't given a dollar to the poorest of the poor. That we won't spend, you know, all of that money just on buildings and stuff and making it nicer when we haven't been super generous to the, those who are most desperate. We know how many millions of dollars would become available? Actually, billions would become available. When you look at the whole nation, look at the whole church around the world, billions of dollars would then become available to be used for the poorest of the poor. So, it's misplaced priorities. I'm not saying don't have the building, but if you can't afford to help the poor, you can't afford the building. It's kind of like going to a restaurant. If you can't afford to tip your waiter or waitress, you can't afford to have gone to the restaurant in the first place. Stay at home and eat peanut butter and jelly, and then when you get enough to actually go to the restaurant with a tip, then you go to the restaurant. (laughs) And all those who ever worked in food service, say amen. All those who, you know, that's the reality, right? And so for the church, it's like, hey, you know, if you haven't given... $5 $5 million to the poorest of the poor, you just don't have $5 million to put into your building. You don't have it. You might have it in paper and in number, but you really don't have it. I mean, that might sound like, well, that's being, you know, what? no, come on. Come on. I mean, to, to me, that's like on the, like, that's on the, I mean, one-to-one is like on the low end of the threshold of what the church should be doing. 
But historically, the church gives less than 10%. To reach the world with the gospel and to help the poorest of the poor, like all together, the church does less than 10%. Most of it's spent on itself. And like that might sound startling and that might sound whatever. That's just reality. And the question I have is, when we sit down, because if, if, if we as a church are ever blessed to be in a position and we sit down, what are we going to, you know, say somebody just like, I don't know, say somebody wins the lottery and gives us millions of dollars. Or somebody just was really wealthy and found out about us and they said, you know what, we're just going to give you $5 million. Sweet. You're like, we would take it. Of course. But what are we going to do with it? Well, we better read these verses before making decisions on what we're going to do with it. Because it's just real simple to go, well, X would be nice. Well, of course it would. Well, of course it would. And so, but here's, here's the kicker, because everybody agrees with me. Everybody, everybody in here agrees with me. And probably most people, in, in, you know, the, there are going to be some people you know, that are going to disagree with this, what I'm saying. It's just like fundamentally from the get-go. But I agree with me on this. When I'm talking, you know, churches and like bigger things, but do we agree about it with our own wallets, our own checkbooks? Then do we agree with it? Or we are like, well, you know, I want bigger organizations and other, I want wealthy people, really wealthy people, to be held to those standards. But I don't want my bank account to be viewed that way. Well, that's the kick in the gut. That's the kick in the gut right there. So when we're making our own decisions, and and you go back and, okay, what did Jesus actually say here? Very good. This is, I mean, it's just copied and pasted. But, all right, here. What did Jesus say here? What did Jesus say here? And what does he expect of me? And then sometimes, and to go, well, and, and, and there's periods in our lives, too. You know, you, look, you might look back at your historical life and go, well, there was a period where I was really generous. And then you think, well, that was actually good. And I had a lot of joy, and everything else. And you, because you, 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 you may enter a time where you're like, realize, well, I haven't really been that generous. I haven't really looked to help those who need it most. You know, I, I'll, I'll kind of. I mean, I go back to that parable of the Good Samaritan. You read that parable, and you see what the outsider did for the insider. What the one who had, you know, socially and politically and everything else had nothing but saw and fellow human being in need. And that human being in need, his social and political standing didn't do him any good when he's beaten and he's practically naked laying on the road about to die. And what did the Samaritan, you know, man do for him? He took care of him. And there's, a, there's just lessons in all of that. And I just go, you know, if you have kids, like you, you want your kids, you know, we want our kids to be the ones who, especially as they get a little bit older, you know, they get in middle school, high school, and, and, and they notice that, you know, nobody sits with Fred or nobody sits with Javier. And you want your kids, to, you know, at lunch, and you want your kid to be the one that goes over and says, let's, let's eat. You know what, and and starts asking questions and have a conversation. You want the one that, you know, we want our kids to be the ones that have compassion. And and what did we think? Did we think all of a sudden, you know, we were going to get to a certain age and then those things are no longer expected from us? That that we don't need to do that sort of thing anymore. That we don't need to go to who the world considers the least of these, and, and reach out to and love. That we all all of a sudden off the hook because we reached 25.
you know, we want our kids to be, you know, we, we are overjoyed when our kids see somebody in need and need some help, and they're the ones that come to us and say, you know, I want to do this for this person. Let's not lose that heart. The faith of a child, the heart of a child, the compassion, you know, I mean, when, when that heart is right, because, I mean, we know our kids can be stinky too, you know, like, let's be real. But when, 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 when those moments, when they get it and we see that they get it, well, let's just live our whole lives like that. When, when, when we see they get it and we get it. And so let's look to follow the Lord. Okay? Let's look to follow the Lord in all things. But the first thing to follow him, you have to know him. You have to be humbled to the point where you say, Lord Jesus, save me. And he will. You just ask him for it. He will. But once he's done that, let's continue to let him work in our lives. And let's not forget the words that he said and the expectations that he has for his people. In any time and in any place, he has the expectations for us are that we love him fully and we love our neighbors as ourselves. We even love our enemies. Those are the expectations that Jesus has. Let's look to that. Heavenly Father, we come to you now, Lord, and, and we, I believe, Lord, every one of us have something to confess. Whether a person hasn't come to believe in you yet or has known you for a long time, we, we all have something to come to you with. I pray that, first of all, we come with our whole selves and we would just... Whatever work you need to do in us, whether you need to save us or whether we've already saved, but we need you to, to, to move and work in our hearts and to change us in our perspective. God, help me. I ask you, help me to love you and, and love people more. And I ask that for each one of us. As we come down and take the bread and, and cup and worship you, help us to do so in spirit and in truth. And we ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen. So we do have, you know, the bread and the cup represents the, the body and blood of Jesus because Jesus, in the night he was betrayed, where he's preparing to go to the cross, he's, he said, take, eat, this is my body. You know, take, drink, this is my blood. And he told us to do it in remembrance of him. And, and so when we take it, you know, though it's just simple bread and a simple cup, like we remember his sacrifice, you know, for us and what he's done for us. So in this time, you know, if you have a song you'd like us to sing that points us to Jesus, a scripture that, that encourages, um, a testimony, something God's done in your life that, that moves us toward worship and towards Jesus, it's appropriate, you know, in this time. There's a lot of other things that we can say and, and do, and those things are appropriate for other times. Um, but in this time, we really want our focus to be on Jesus and, and what he's done for us. Because he's a great savior, and he's a great king. And he welcomes in any who would desire uh, to be um, one of his. Mm-hmm.